A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the latest episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I am news correspondent Sarah King, joined in studio by my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. How's it going? I always think the hello is a bit awkward, isn't it? It was a bit, a bit cringe. A bit cringe. <laughs> we said hello multiple times we didn't like, disappear in the I, studio. I think we've been speaking to each other for quite a while. We have, right? so it's a bit much. And political correspondent Gavin Riley. Hello. hello, Gavin. How are you, Zara? Do you know when we were saying goodbye last week? There was such a delay that when I said goodbye, it was like this really weak sort of like, bye. <laughs> Like, it was basically Saturday morning by the time it was. It was. It was through. quite poor. Um, how are you both keeping good? Not too bad. How are you? Yeah. How's Look at our new setting now on a Wednesday night. Wednesday night. Yeah. Oh. Welcome to Wednesday night. There we go. The Big leagues, Champions League stuff as there well. We as. Yeah. <laughs> Top four finish for the lads. We're delighted if you're joining us on Wednesday night, or if you're joining us on Thursday morning for the podcast. Um, we hope you enjoy the next uh, hour of conversation about what's been happening in the world, what's been happening in the news. Um, we're going to start with the eviction ban. Both of you have been working on this mm. uh, this week. The government approving a one-off ban on evictions ahead of the exceptional winter period. Um, under the plans, notice of termination can be issued to tenants, but the property does not have to be vacated until the ban is phased out next year. I'm going to start with you, Gav. What exactly does this actually mean for people? What it means in practice is that as long as you have been fulfilling all the obligations of a tenant, in other words, paying your rent, making sure the place is kept up and not effectively trashing the place, you are entitled to stay where you are at the very least until the 1st of April. And this seems to apply as long as you are meeting your obligations in pretty much every context. So, and and we've been taking some questions, but one of the the big questions that we got in on Instagram was from a category of people who were like, well, can I move back into my own house? If I left my own house for a fixed period Mm. and my tenants knew that I was going to come back at a certain time, can I still take the house back? And it would seem from what the government is telling me, you can't. Such is the level of protection that you're now going to have where X number of people, I think 2,273 is the oddly precise projection that the government has put forward for the number of uh, tenancies that now won't be terminated under this. But in effect, the, the long and the short of it is that as long as you are doing everything a tenant is supposed to do, you're allowed to stay where you are at least until the 1st of April and potentially until the middle of June, depending on whatever time you might be served with your notice or how long you've already been living there. Mm. Is this a welcome relief, do you reckon? It is, yeah, from the people I've been talking to who um, have really been angling and pushing for this for a long time. So groups like the Simon Community, uh, like Focus Ireland, like the Peter McVeary Trust, they've all been saying that there really does need to be an evictions ban of some form uh, for a long, long time now. And they actually can't understand where there's been so much foot dragging about it. I mean, obviously the government said that it would be unconstitutional initially, more on that a little bit later on. Mm. But when there has been, as they have noticed, Threshold in particular, which, you know, it does a great job at crunching the numbers on housing and homelessness, they have seen over the course of this year a big, big spike in the number of uh, notices to quit which have been served to end tenancies uh, in comparison not just with the COVID years but with 2019 as well effectively almost a doubling on average per month of that so when you're seeing all that happen and when you're seeing it come towards a winter uh, where there is a big shortage of accommodation obviously the homeless crisis I think Mm -hmm. it, it lands a lot more in the public imagination over winter because of the fears of what happens when people are sleeping rough over that period when you have all these things plus the landlords who say they're going to be leaving Mm -hmm. and the biggest reason for notices to quit these days is because landlords are selling up that they're selling the property so your tenancy's over out you go 
So when you have all these things coming together, they say it was inevitable that something like this actually needed to happen. So one voice I just want to bring to you uh, is Wayne Stanley of uh, the Simon Communities of Ireland. Uh, he basically says that this was so essential because there is no emergency accommodation left in the country. Mm. People would have found themselves sleeping in all sorts of bad situations. It's particularly uh, around families and, the, and I suppose the particular focus is children in those families. Uh, we saw even when we had the moratorium on evictions during COVID, we saw single homelessness continue to increase. Yeah, so what Wayne's saying there, uh, really eloquently about you know people potentially having to sleep in cars, sleep in guard stations, mm. sleep in tents, which we're already seeing in, in various situations again around the country. Yeah, and we've seen it before, haven't we? A couple mm. of years ago. Very high profile. Very high profile cases, yeah. Yeah, so this is something he says would have become a lot, lot worse if this wasn't in place. So broad welcome from that. I think even politically there has been as well sort of a let's get this in as quickly as yeah. possible. It's kind of been the, the, the overwhelming yeah, if, political consensus. If there is agreement, it's almost what are we going to do to make sure that the situation isn't this bad in April? Are we going to provide more emergency accommodation or what are you going to do to get the finger out to try and resolve this so that by the time this is this is lifted that the crisis has ended? Um, you mentioned the, the lack of emergency accommodation. It's actually worth kind of reflecting on this because a lot of the questions that we've also had in that we've all been getting on Instagram are how is this allowed given that everyone was saying up until now that it wasn't allowed? You know, and you, you're going to talk in a moment, Richard, about the constitutional challenges that there might be on the way. Um, the official reason that the government is giving is that they now believe this is legally sound or safe or permissible because by their own admission, they are running out of emergency accommodation. So three wow. months or six or nine or 12 or 18 months ago, they would say, well, yeah, there might be loads of people who can't afford their rent and have nowhere else to go. But the state is capable of at least providing a hotel room or refuge somewhere for those people to have a roof over their heads at night. And the reason why they now think it's tenable to intervene in the market is because they, by their own admission, they are running out of beds mm. because of the mm. bottom of people that are already homeless and living in emergency accommodation, the number of beds that have been given over to Ukrainian refugees, the number of other beds that are being claimed by people seeking asylum in the country through international protection. When you throw all of those together, we're running out of beds in the country and the state only believes this is tenable now because it's incapable of providing a backup option, which is pretty grim if you think about it. It's pretty appalling, isn't it, when you think about it? But it is also the, the terrible silver lining to that awful cloud is that that's why the government now believes that it has the legal cover to go ahead with this. Yeah, and as well, when you couple the emergency accommodation situation with the fact that there's just no private rental accommodation in the country as well, mm. and even less for people who are depending on payments and supports like HAP, for example, yeah. effectively, forget about it. If you're reliant on HAP, there's nothing there for you in, in, in most of the country. Um, the landlords, uh, surprise, surprise, are the only people who are uh, quite aggrieved by this. Um, so they were all in. I was actually at the meeting. I was outside the meeting on um, the day before it was announced. Uh, they all went in for a meeting with Daryl O'Brien, the housing minister. So you had your, your sort of property owners, landlords and letting agents, their representative groups, and you had representatives for the homeless and the RTB, the Residential Tenancies Board as well. So they're all in a meeting to hammer it out and hear, here's what, what exactly is coming. What do you need uh, for us to just get, get give this the go ahead? And effectively what landlords are saying is we need more supports but we're all going to be selling up anyway. And it's kind of just a situation where some of the groups representing landlords, like the IPOA, the Irish Property Owners Association, mm. their view on it was that it just won't help and it won't work, which is not really what anybody else is saying in terms of groups representing the homeless and even by the government's own admission mm. in terms of the number you quoted, Gav. Yeah. Um, so the IPOA, not happy with it, uh, and they were so unhappy with it that they actually floated for a time uh, on uh, Tuesday morning, the idea of them actually taking a constitutional uh, challenge of this. And they haven't they haven't written it off now. Did, but they, have... they, they said it almost firstly as if it was absolutely going to happen. And then it seemed like they tried to sort of walk it back or say that they might do it over the course of the day. Yeah. 
They did. They because they, they initially said I think it was on News Talk Breakfast on the radio this, uh, on Tuesday morning. They said, "Yep, no, we're going to challenge this when it comes in." Then I chatted to them, and they were like, "Well, we'll wait and see what happens." And then a little bit later on, once the announcement was actually made, they had a statement out saying, "We're not going to comment on this, but it's unfair and it's unjust <laughs> yeah. and it's uh, it penalizes landlords, which sounds like a comment to me." <laughs> but uh, they didn't mention the fact that there would be a constitutional challenge. So I think there's been a bit of a walk back on that, just to try and kind of cool the situation down a little bit. But they did speak to us on Virgin Media News yesterday uh, about uh, how they view the situation. Here's a little bit of what they had to say. We're not surprised because um, the um, all the parties have been calling for it, particularly um, Sinn Féin. And um, really, you know, this is landlords being um, hijacked again, being blamed for the housing crisis. It's all got to do with the failure of successive governments to provide housing over the last few years and over-reliance on the, the private rental um, system to provide homes for people. So I suppose we're not surprised. We don't support it. We don't think it's going to achieve anything. So, Gavin, what does it mean for people who have already gotten a notice now at the moment telling them that they have to be out of their house? Maybe they got the notice in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Are those people protected? Uh, as long as they were not supposed to be leaving the property in the next, what date is it? We're recording this in the 19th. As long as they're not supposed to leave in the next 12 days, they okay. should be protected until the 1st of April. So the, the general principle behind this is that anyone who has already received a notice to quit or a termination notice, that basically this presses pause on the clock. So even if uh, you only had a couple of days left by the 1st of November and you were looking to find somewhere else, the idea is that this basically presses pause. It's almost like one of those like 90s childhood sitcoms where somebody has like a stopwatch and they stop it and the entire world freezes. Mm. It's that kind of a mm. burner's watch approach. Um, and, and so that that's basically it then. That is the like most that, Gav analogy it, I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I was trying to think Gav, of the name of the program who's referencing Gav, and then doing things. There you go. Um, so that, that is, that, that's basically what it is, that the, the clock stops immediately and you are protected until the end of March. Now you mentioned, by the way, letting agents are how, how few properties there are in the rental market mm-hmm. already. It's going to be even fewer. One of the questions that I got in was, uh, you know, uh, what is this, do you have any jobs going? Because I'm a rental agent and between a lot of the other things that were going on in the rental market and now this uh, effectively shutting down any new properties because a lot of places that might have been they have vacant to do, is it? aren't going to be vacant. That They're like, it's going to be very quiet for us for the next five or six months, which is... I, I'm not sure how legitimate it is because I don't know to what extent more properties might come into the market because you would think there probably wouldn't be that many people that are getting kicked out of their flat in order to make space for another tenant. Can I just read you a tweet before you go on there from our friend and colleague Kira Phelan who works for Archie Glamour's tweet today. A four bedroom house has gone up for rent close to me 8,700 a month. What young professional or student could afford to pay 2175 a month for a room or even, I guess, a family to rent that entire I'd say that's, house? yeah, that sounds to me like a family situation. That there are, yeah. I think there's something, somebody I know who's in the, the letting business says that there's a big market for sort of higher priced family, full furnished sort of family mm-hmm. homes like for people who are... key stuff. Yeah, yeah and they're, they're yeah. often short terms. So I don't know what the exact situation is there, no, no, but... No, but I still think that is astonishing. That is wild. Kind of mad, wild, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about that, Gav? I mean, the points that, that, that you're on your question there about letting agents not having a, a lot to do. Like, I mean, you have to balance everything about this. Like, obviously, yeah. there are property rights and stuff like that. Mm. It's like literally Zara, like, I mean, mm. we're, we're it, it's an emergency situation and we're yeah. trying to prevent people from sleeping on the streets. Yeah. I, I, I don't think, you know, society is better served by prioritising the property rights of, of landlords for this time, even though they're still going to be getting the rent and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, look, there are some people, people who are landlords who are small landlords and who obviously mm. ended up in it because they had their own financial problems and you have to empathise with those people definitely, you know. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, having met and interviewed so many families, you know, all of us have that have been like given very short notice to quit. Um, 
people who have children who've had, you know, places in schools and communities who they just absolutely cannot find a replacement property in that neighbourhood, uprooting mm-hmm. their families. Um, you know, we talk all the time about the unseen homeless, people who are back living at home with their parents, like, you know, yeah. whole generations of families living under one roof. Like, these are things that perhaps we don't even actually see that are very prevalent right now. And it's kind of that a bit, that sort of narrative around unable to launch, like unable to get a start, unable yeah. to get to get up and running, that people kind of find themselves in a situation where they've saved for the deposit, they've gotten the mortgage, and we'll get on to that in a second, the changes to the central bank uh, lending rules, which will be significant for people, but will inevitably mm. drive up prices of houses, even if it's just short term. One group which is particularly affected by that, and actually was chatting to them last week, and there's a good few of them who are group chat listeners as well, uh, who are speaking to us, were students. Students um, had a yeah. protest, obviously, mm. last Thursday around accommodation and general cost of living uh, crisis. A lot of them, just because of the lack of the availability mm. of rental properties and rooms in Dublin and Galway and Limerick and Cork and, and everywhere in the country, Waterford, Kilkenny as well, basically long, 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 long commutes. So a couple of different things here in what you're about to hear here, stuff about the cost of living and not effectively being able to pay for heating when you're in your rented accommodation, up yeah. for, when, you're spending, when you're up in college, you're traveling halfway across the country to get a room, you can't afford to heat it. And then... The problem, which is trying to go through a whole degree or, uh, uh, you know, a post-leaving cert certificate when you have to commute every day for multiple hours. I'm sitting in my apartment. Literally, we can't turn on the heating because it's too expensive. Like this Tuesday, I, I was in work and I was in work till 2am because I have to work. I have to be able to earn money. And then I have to go home. It's at 3am and then I have a 9am, three-hour class the next morning. And that does affect my education. My commute is two hours each way every single day, like, and I'm shattered when I go home. It's draining me mentally and physically, like, I just can't keep doing it, like. Well, I'm also forced to sometimes have to leave my classes early because there's also not enough time for me to get back down to the station to get home. So I'm forced to decide whether to leave class, stay, or try and find a way back home myself, and it's just not. So to hear all of those views, Gavin, this is not something that, I mean, it's a very prevalent problem right now. Mm. But when you were a student back in 2007, given <laughs> your age now. When um, I was a lad. Yeah. <laughs> but like all jokes aside, that was something that you had been protesting about during your student yeah. politics days. One of the things that's really depressing about all of this is that I was a the accommodation officer for UCD Students Union in 2007 and 8. Uh, wow. which was and what a, was it like then? Was it? Uh, grim. Now, it was grim then. Now, I genuinely thought at the time that it w- I'd find it hard to see any grimmer. And because that was the tail end, remember, of the Celtic Tiger. Well, it was just coming to the, well, the roar was yeah, stopping. This is exactly point. it. So that basically housing had become so dear that a lot of people who had been otherwise staying in what had been earmarked as student accommodation or student digs or student flats were staying where they were because they couldn't afford anywhere else. And mm-hmm. therefore, new students coming to the likes of UCD had nowhere else to move. And um, it's actually 15 years ago last month uh, that I and other members of the student movement in Ireland um, slept outside Leinster House for a night. Uh, I, I pass by it now every day on my way into work, which is kind of bizarre. Um, but we slept young outside know what was lo- out in front looking of for a student accommodation task force because we were making the case then that we were already at a point where students just trying to go about the basics of going to a degree had nowhere to live or nowhere affordable to live. And we were promised at the time that there was going to be a student accommodation task force and that no colleges were ever going to rapidly expand without giving some thought to where all these people were going to live or expanding the college's own stock of on-campus or off-campus accommodation. And here we are now, 15 years later, and the problem is infinitely far worse. Um, mm. what, what was unfortunate about the timing of our protest in 2007 <clears throat> was that because the entire property market then collapsed 12 months later, 
all of the good intentions of the government to go and tackle the problem all dissolved away because there were far bigger issues at stake. So there was never any outcome to that student accommodation task force. But it's maybe a little story about how all these things keep getting raised in one generation and then the, the urgency goes away and no one ever does anything about it until suddenly we all get caught in a vice a generation down the line. But I think the difference, Richard, right, is that, and I kind of remember because I was in college at the same time, we all remember, like, yes, there might have been an accommodation shortage, but that um, pinch in terms of paying your bills and your heating and things was a bit different, I think. I don't know, was it the same? I think what we're seeing now is is almost a step further than that. This is not just, totally. as you say, yeah. about accommodation. Like, I don't know, now maybe I just didn't see it, but I don't know if I remembered people not being able to maybe put the heating on in college back mm, then, whereas yeah. I do think that's the change we're seeing now. So it means we're sort of going backwards in a lot of ways as a country. Well, it, it, it is, and it's the combination of different things. Like you mentioned the heat and the cost of bills, which we're all obviously seeing. Then you're seeing the cost of even, you know, you know petrol for, for students who drive, public transport. That's enormous. If you're commuting, you can't afford the everything. accommodation, it's nearly dearer for you. I'm just going to say, yeah. I would say fuel costs would be the same price as probably a room every week. But it also goes to show like that the, the, the stuff that falls through the cracks over the years, like investment in public transport and good routes mm. has an impact because if you are forced to rely on your own private car driving up from say, Carlo or Leash to Dublin yeah. every single day for college, well, like the cost to you is astronomical. It increases the wait time for everybody else who's driving in on the mm. same route. And effectively, it's a problem which is just pushed further and further down the line. And, you know, because because the political um, issue of the day moves on so quickly mm. that the big structural problems are often left yeah. untouched left for a long, untouched. long time. But it's even if you say, use Carlo as an example there, Gav, right? You know, you obviously went to UCD. If you're coming up from Carlo to go to UCD every day, right? You get mm. the train maybe from Carlo to Houston or whatever. Like, even to get from Houston across to UCD, like, is a real, that's yeah, a journey. Sure, like, like, oh, that's that's probably who, more of a journey like, than going from I, Carlo to Dublin. I, I remember uh, being fr friends with people in UCD who only lived in places like just outside Tala, like Farhouse, and had to mm. get the bus into town to get the bus back out of town. I, mean, yeah. I know, Richard, like, when I met you in UCD, you were getting two buses to get into town and out, but that's because you lived in the opposite side of the city. Yeah. People yeah. who lived, like, within 50 Minutes drive. Richard like remembers those times so like he just the hates he's like he literally just <laughs> spent an awful it's lot almost of, like he's, he finds it quite triggering he spent an awful lot of his life on those buses too. far more um, yeah, time on like, buses and trains yeah. Yeah. 15 minutes drive of UCD and still have to get a bus into town and spend an hour on that bus to turn around and get another bus back out almost exactly the same direction which yeah. is just a sign of how underinvested it all was um, more to come on the group chat we'll talk to you after the break When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, the British Prime Minister is still battling to retain her position. I feel like we're repeating ourselves every week on this. <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter who the Prime she Minister is. She ever not is battling to retain battling. her position, yeah. unfortunately. Um, shouts of resign could be heard as she spoke uh, today in the House of Parliament. Uh, it's, been, it's been a difficult time for our colleagues across the water. Uh, we are joined now by um, Investigations Editor with Global, Lewis Goodall, also a third of uh, the news agents. Hi, Lewis. How are you? I'm not bad, thank you. How are you? With deepest sympathies to you and your colleagues, it's been a very hectic couple of weeks. How are you coping with it? 
Oh, sympathies, come on. You know, we're all journalists here. Like, I mean, you know, this, like is, this is what... I don't know what, how we... I don't know how we... I don't know. I mean, how... Yeah. I mean, how is the, the Martin Varadka handover going? Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, um, by, by comparison. I mean, again, the great thing about Ireland, right, is that at least you can kind of... You're close enough to it that it can all feel really kind of connected and sometimes a little bit too connected, right? Um, but you can kind of live vicariously. You can still sort of say, oh, well... That's happening over there. Yeah. Um, so it's look. I mean, like it's hour. It's hour by hour, um, as always with this stuff. Um, and you know, you never quite know what is going to happen next. I mean, basically, you know, the Conservative Party is very good. Uh, has been very good now at inflicting its psychodrama on the rest of politics. Um, and you know, I, I think we we're just like a bit like the, the the frog in the boiling jar. Now we've just got so used to it. Uh, becoming sort of crazier, crazier, by hour by hour. But, you know, you, I don't know what we'd quite do now if things went back to normal, if there is such a thing. Well, it is exciting. How, tell us, in a brief synopsis, how has it come to this point, Lewis, for our listeners? How long you got? I, I, I mean, we've got I a 15 minute window. Keep it tight, keep it tight. <laughs> in summary. Kind of, okay, right. Let's go back to the Maastricht Treaty of 1992. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, I don't know. I mean, look, I mean, look, the, the, the situation as it is now, while well, about three o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, you know, Truss has done Prime Minister's questions. It was a pretty bad performance. It was probably worse, even worse than most people expected, which is kind of, uh, wow. you know, it's is kind of difficult to achieve in these, uh, in, these, mm. in these circumstances. But it's very difficult for her. What could she say? You know, I mean, like, number 10 have alighted upon this line of, well, I'm, uh, you know, I took, I had a courageous decision. You know, I, it was very difficult for me to turn back on everything I said, I believe, but I realized that was the right thing, and that's what I've done. I mean, and that is really small beer, right? Because basically the argument is, is like tantamount to, yeah, I went and set the house on fire. I was an arsonist, uh, and I let all of the contents of the house, all the furniture and everything inside it burn to a crisp. But, you know, after three weeks, I did go and get a hose and put it out. And that did take real courage because I'd put it on fire in the first place. <laughs> you know, that really, it doesn't cut much mustard. Do you know what I mean? It's a difficult argument to sustain. So it's difficult to know what she can say. And, you know, the truth is, is that, you know, Conservative MPs are, we're playing that game again of, you know, how many letters have been sent to Sir Graham Brady, who basically spends his entire life having letters handed to him by his <laughs> colleagues, um, calling him no confidence. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what he would do. He's probably the busiest 1922 committee chairman there's ever been, um, you know, and we're playing that game all over again. And he's basically said that if he gets to a third, or it's been, he's let it be known that if it gets to a third of his colleagues, say, have uh, sent him a letter, then he'll go and see the Prime Minister. So we're just playing that numbers game all over again. Um, so we're in a situation now where a lot of the stuff that she announced as part of a mini-budget three weeks ago, or at least the quasi Quarting announced, but that she kind of co-wrote, all of that's been thrown out and he's been sacked for doing something that she agreed with. Um, is it a situation where it, it is effectively it's lose-lose for her, that either she stays on, but that she's kind of got no authority, that she's got no real manifesto to speak of, that she's a Prime Minister in name only, or that they just decide to turf her out and put in someone who's got a bit more authority. There doesn't seem to be any way at all that she can salvage any kind of kudos or credibility out of this. Well, look, I think that uh, you've got to try and understand the psychology of what's going through her head and her team's head, right? The truth is, is that they're not really thinking long, long term, right? I mean, you know, there's a suggestion that maybe there's a very, very slender path that she can restore stability and, you know, start to project confidence, whatever that means, and get through to October the 31st when there's the midterm budget review and then get beyond that and then get to Christmas and then get beyond Christmas, that somehow she can sort of salvage the situation. 
The truth is they're thinking literally hour by hour and day by day. And what is the main thing going through her head? Like, why is she thinking I have to try and salvage this? Well, fundamentally, it's not really about the ideas at this point because, you know, it's been made very clear that her entire perspective has been junked. You know, Britain's still got the uh, crosshair, it's still in the crosshairs of the market. So the, its room for manoeuvre is very limited. What Liz Truss is basically playing for now is not to be a pub quiz quiz question, not to mm. be a bit of trivia, an asterisk next to her name, the prime minister who lasted for two months and set her own premiership on fire. Because she's got to live with that for the rest of her life, right? She's not even 50. She would be facing down the prospect of every time she goes into the supermarket being sort of loathed because she's the woman who literally cost everybody more in their mortgages and, you know, a mixture of loathing and and mocking and you know that's a very difficult thing for any politician to swallow so she's just trying to think can i get to november can i get to december can i get to 2023 so the numbers next to my name are at least 2022 to 2023 rather than being 2022 it's as base as that i think that's wow. what we're dealing with in terms of psychology what what does it do to the national psyche lewis when you have you know such a, a, a fundamental economic policy decided by a british prime minister and her chancellor effectively upended and and binned scrapped because of the international markets the fact that the markets can decide then what the policy of of, of the british government is has to have some damage on how the country sees itself i think this is an economic sewage you know for britain um, i think we get very wrapped up partly because we've all gone through the sort of conservative party psychodrama over the last few years and you know obviously we get very worked up in the personalities what this means for trust what you know actually let's just divorce and forget about that what has happened over the last few uh, days and weeks has been a deeply revealing moment for british economic power um, and if you take a slightly longer view going back to the start of the brexit period and so on there has no doubt been a very visible real terms decline in both British political power, but also economic power as well. Um, and it has been a moment where fundamentally, like Suez, it was a moment of hubris. You have a government come along and say, actually, it doesn't really, Britain has the ability and the strength and the power to uh, buck the market, go against the market, um, and the market will keep lending to us. And we saw in real terms, real time, that that wasn't true. We, she tried to do Reaganomics without having the dollar as uh, in her back pocket as a reserve currency, and it didn't work. And I think over the long term, there's two effects of that. One, whatever British politics has actually just become a lot narrower in the last few days and weeks. The menu available to any British government, whether that's you know Liz Truss or someone from the Conservative Party or who replaces her, or even an incoming Labour government, is going to be that much more restricted. Ireland knows about that. Ireland knows what it's like to have the markets mm. suddenly have oh, you yeah. in their crosshairs mm. and what a debilitating effect that has on politics because basically it means that the menu of options available to a government is so much more limited than what it was before. So politics has become much narrower and I think that's in the short term and medium term and in the long term, I think there's no doubt it's been a humiliating moment for Britain akin to 1976 and the IMF crisis or 1992 and Black Wednesday. And that will have an effect both on the psychology of the country, but also of the political class. And when you look at that then, Lewis, on a kind of a ground level, when you look at towns and villages and cities up and down the United Kingdom and, and people who are paying their bills and getting on with their lives, what do you hear from them? How are they feeling about all of this? Well, look, I mean, we've just had a situation where um, uh, 10%, you know, we just had that inflation, latest inflation figures out, 10% uh, higher than everybody thought it was going to be. It's still hovering about that. And, and that's the extraordinary thing. We spent the entire summer 
basically, as the Conservative Party has its very long leadership contest, speculating and talking about, well, what is the British government's reaction or response going to be to help the public through what is a profound and significant cost of living crisis? Well, we now know what the reaction was go is going to be, what the response is going to be, and it's a response that no one would have anticipated. It is a you know enormous package of tax cuts which precipitates a financial crisis of international proportions, which then precipitates uh, all, not only all of the tax cuts going that were promised to help with cost of living, but also chaos in the mortgage markets, which has added to the inflationary problem. And so the British public end up in the worst of all worlds, where not only has there been crisis in the mortgage markets and interest rates are going to be higher than they would have been, and mortgage costs are going to be higher than they would have been, but we don't even have the tax cuts to cushion the blow. And the British government, which is suddenly denuded of a lot of the policy options and freedom of manoeuvre that it might have had to try and help everybody. So, you know, the British government is going to be pretty unique in Europe now in essentially its government not be really being able to assist its citizens that much through the autumn and winter. It will a bit around energy, but not as much as thought, at precisely the time when, and on top of that, it's probably going to have to raise, not cut taxes, and cut public spending, at precisely the time when many other European governments are coming out with a package of support measures for their populations. It is just an unfathomable situation by comparison to even a few weeks ago. Mm. There's one thing which I think has caught people's attention here in particular are, is, is comedy really about this. Uh, Michael Spicer, I'm sure you saw the video uh, where he was sort of imitating a journalist getting texts in from, from Tory MPs about Liz Truss. We actually have a clip of that here which we can insert there for our viewers. And, and, and not long before we came on air, an ex-cabinet minister said to me, watching Liz Truss lead my party is like watching a sea lion driving a Segway into a bear trap factory. She has the aptitude and charisma of a crisp packet in a high wind, and I want her chased out of Downing Street by wolves. I mean, that's, that's just an example. So Lewis, in reality... I feel seen. I feel yeah. seen. <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, I mean, this has been something which I've noticed even with Theresa May and with Boris Johnson as well, is that when there's a Tory leader in trouble, you have MPs swarming to have their, their spake, as we'd say over here, about the leader and just basically do it in as flowery language as possible secretly. Like, what, what are they saying to you? What is it about them? Do they think that they're going to get these comments broadcast and there's almost a competitive nature to it or is it a bit of grandstanding? What is it? Honestly, it is ridiculous. I mean, it's actually, I think, one of the worst parts of like the kind of Westminster village. It, it's, it's like, it's, I think both sides are basically egging the other on, right? The journalists are, are saying to the Tory MPs, so what's going on? And oh, how bad, how, how, how bad, how bad is it? And they go, oh, it's very bad. Oh, go on, tell me a bit more, how bad? And you know, and there's a kind of like competitive element and it ends up just becoming absurd. It becomes like, it descends into kind of the, I, as far as I'm concerned, I want to see her like literally fired out of a cannon and then I want to see her entrails be picked to bits <laughs> by the ravens of the Tower of London. Yeah. Or it becomes, you know, you start to get these absurd historical references. This is, this is worse than Talleyrand, you know, and all this sort of like, it just becomes absolutely absurd. Most of it is completely unknowable to the average viewer, listener or reader or whatever. They just think this is absurd, but it just becomes part of the kind of pantomime of the of the Westminster discourse. Uh, sometimes it does feel like we wish they'd put as much thought into their choice of leader as they do into their wordplay. Um, <laughs> we've been spitballing before in this podcast, Lewis, about whether it's plausible or whether the Tories could really pull off changing leader twice in quick succession mm. without kind of getting 
any public sign off or sort of going back and checking with the public that they're still on board. And we've sort of reached a conclusion that it's not really plausible or tenable to do that. But I suppose <laughs> we're in a situation now where mm. they probably would try to do that, that they would get rid of Liz Truss and bring in someone else and just not bother to consult the public because consulting the public is, is a suicide wish, isn't it? Well, look, uh, there've been lots of like, there've been lots of things over the last few years that people never thought could be possible, but ended up being possible. One of which, to be honest, was Liz Truss becoming prime minister. I think if you'd said that, you know, only a couple of years ago or six months ago, well, maybe not six months ago, but 12 months ago. So people would have found that an unlikely prospect, right? So I think in the grand scheme of things, given all of the precedents that have been felled and all of the sort of various things that were never ever, could never ever happen that have happened, I think, you know, the Tory party changing PM again in the middle of a parliament, so having three PMs in a year or three PMs in a parliament isn't probably the most extreme example of that. And the fact of the matter is, A, there is actually, although I think you know the public would probably find it, would be incredulous at it, and there would be growing questions around legitimacy for the government, particularly if it was doing more and more things that weren't in the 2019 general election manifesto, which it would be doing because of the crisis in the markets and cuts in public spending and so on. But nonetheless, there's no constitutional requirement to have a general election as long as they can command the support of the House of Commons. And I think, you know, if the Tory, Tory MPs are basically weighing up different size catastrophes, right? They're, they're not weighing up good options. They're just weighing up the least bad. And if the choice is between Liz Truss going into the next general election as their leader, which literally very almost no Conservative MPs want, gone Liz Truss and her in a Praetorian guard, right? Because the thing you've got to remember about her is that she doesn't have, unlike, say, Boris Johnson, who still has a lot of support on the back benches of the Tory party, and lots of Tory MPs would love to see him back, they, she doesn't really have a particular constituency within the Conservative Party. She doesn't have a phalanx of her own, really. It was the sort of the Boris Johnson phalanx that sort of swept in behind her, but it's pretty skin deep in terms of their support for her. So, you know, ultimately... The Conservative Party is just weighing up what is the least worst option. And if that were a choice of just, yeah, OK, you're going to have a lot of members of the public going, this is illegitimate, we want a general election. Well, frankly, you just sort of grin and bear it and go, OK, well, but it's mm. not going to happen. And just try hope that you've got two years to, you know, to, to grin and bear it and see what happens. Mm. One group of people who didn't expect ever to see Liz Truss and didn't want to see Liz Truss ever become the Prime Minister is actually the Irish government. Uh, there was a lot of briefing around the time of the leadership competition yeah. that, well, we, we don't mind who it is as long as it isn't Liz Truss uh, because she was seen as a Brexit convert and there's that old saying about never trust a turncoat because they have too much to prove. Mm. Um, mm. What do we think about, and I mean, this is obviously a very Irish-led question, but there was a, a thought, I think even people like Michelle Barnier expressed it, that because of the economic upheaval now in Britain, they wouldn't want to have too much of a confrontation with Europe about the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example. So they thought that there might be a lot more space then for a compromise. Has that entered into any thought process there? Is there any likelihood then of that there will be more of a chance of some sort of bridge building with Europe than there would have been otherwise if there wasn't for this, you know, economic uh, shitstorm, I'm going to say, actually, to be honest, to let's get to the believers there. <laughs> well, you know what's sad? Uh, about this, which is I don't think it's really entering much of their equation or thinking one way or the other in the sense that this is kind of what happens, right? And we, we've been so accustomed to it now for a year. We basically haven't had a government in Britain that's not been enveloped in crisis basically all year because since the start of the year, you had party gate, it seems like a long time ago now, whatever, and that just sort of ran and ran and ran. And then you went straight headfirst into all of this as soon as that ended. And I think the truth is, is that when you have a government which is just in perpetual crisis, everything else goes out the window 
And like I said before, everything basically just becomes about hour by hour, day by day survival, staying alive to the next day. And in terms of whether what they're really thinking about, say, the Northern Ireland Protocol, obviously really important, at the very top of government, there mm-hmm. just will be no bandwidth to really discuss it. I think, you know, as long as the PM remains weak, it's certainly, and the economy is in a very poor state, it's unlikely that they're going to decide to say, hey, let's just, you know, let's have a trade war with the EU in those <laughs> circumstances. But, you know, I don't even really think it's entering their bandwidth and thinking very much one way or the other. Lewis Goodall, Investigations Editor with Global. Thank you so much for joining us on the Group Chat Podcast. It's fair to say if you enjoy the Group Chat, you're definitely going to enjoy the news agents. Um, So make sure you check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Lewis. My pleasure. Now, a story that has been, I don't want to say dominating social media, it's probably a bridge too far, but... A fridge too far. I mean, a fridge too far. Excellent. (laughs) Not rehearsed in any way. Amazing that it happened. I love that. I love that view. Um, (laughs) Good night, everybody. So, if you haven't seen this, uh, Leo Vryker posted a... uh, a story on Instagram uh, saying that uh, Matt has partnered on the food prep for the week as a lot of people do of a Sunday and uh, it really garnered an enormous reaction for a couple of reasons. I would say first of all it was difficult to establish what was actually in the Tupperware boxes. Mm. A lot of people were zooming in there was not a lot of clarity on what was in them. Again each to their own no one's passing judgment on what everyone's having for dinner but the lack of uh, lids cling film (laughs) The Food Safety Authority has felt the need to come out and clarify to people that lids are essential to prevent cross-contamination. An Instagram story that got to this length, I mean, well, that, what were your thoughts when you saw it? Well, that's Fine Gael not getting the agriculture brief after the reshuffle then, because uh, <laughs> like, clearly if, if the food safety people are, are all over them, then that, that's that one gone. Um, uh, there's a bit of me that's actually, like, I know sometimes politicians do this kind of artificially to do the whole, like, oh, look, I'm a real person too. Yeah. Like, well, they are real is there not, yeah, but, Well, of course they are. Yeah, yeah. But is, is there not a bit, <laughs> I don't know why the political course one has to go out of his way to clarify that politicians <laughs> are real people, but we are where we are. Um, just, was there nothing in Leo Varadkar that would go, this looks a bit miserable? Like, is his life so, like, partitioned out and, like, tupperware out that there's no bit of you that goes, this actually looks a little bit joyless. But see, I feel like food prepping is hashtag relatable content on some level. Like, you know, there's a cohort of people who food prep and who are like, yeah. you know, hashtag fit fam, hashtag, you know, food prep. Yeah. And like, and like some people, like, I think it's amazing that they have the organizational skills to do that. So I can understand where you're coming from. Well, and you're he's like, got previous as well, Thursday night being wing night and the, uh, the yeah. amazingness of himself and Matt having chicken wings and both wearing white shirts and the bravery that that takes. Remember one time you said to me, Richard was on a date one time, he said, she ordered chicken wings. I thought, Many years ago, and by I the thought, way. brave girl. <laughs> As a woman, by the way. Brave woman. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it was very funny. Yeah. That was a long time ago, but it was very funny. What did you make of it? Overblown. I'm actually really? well out of it now. I yeah. actually, I'm I, think, honest, I, think, I kind of loved it. I'm going to be totally straight. Yeah, I, just, it. Just, I just find, and like far be it from, again, far be it from us to defend anybody. Like, yeah. Some of the reaction is so ridiculous. And I read the worst tweet that I've ever read in my life this morning. Yeah. Is that the yeah. one about the sterile culture of self-quantification and self-optimization that meal prep represents and ethos? Yeah, the one I put in the, the, the group chat earlier on, yeah. With the moralistic neoliberalism. That, that I thought was a joke forth. and then you were like, that's not a joke. Yeah. I thought that was a joke. Two points. Go outside and touch grass. <laughs> uh, second point <laughs> is... Not today though, it's very wet. Stop <laughs> it, yeah. Judging people on what they eat yeah fair because people have multiple reasons for doing this whether they have dietary requirements uh, uh, whether they be a T-shock or a Taunus just sorry future T-shock uh, and uh, his cardiologist or uh, cardiologist mm. yeah. Uh, yeah. partner yeah very busy very probably the busy. best way of getting a home cooked meal is to bring it with them 
Uh, and then second of all, there's a lot of people who do this for multiple reasons, whether that's fitness and stuff like that, or eating disorders and stuff like that. Yeah. Who, who actually, I was actually was interested to read somebody's take on it, but basically that the whole discussion around, oh, why are people make, make, t- pulling the, the mickey out of what Leo Bradker's um, eating was uh, quite triggering for them from an eating disorder point of view. We didn't really think about it. Mm. But in fairness, I have mm. to say, Fair argument, um, the, the Lids thing was just the worst thing for me now. Oh, like, well, I will get like on board and the Lids thing is just, now, Which is why like, it was a yeah. follow-up post, wasn't there? Yeah, so he, he then reposted and in fairness, I say he got into trouble at home when he said he did. He said, I'm in trouble with Matt for not doing justice to his meal prep photos with my photo. For everyone asking, yes, we do use Lids and we do have vegetables. I will say the second photo was very appetising. Yeah. I would say it was really nice. The do-over is great. The do-over was lovely, actually. I would absolutely go yeah, we definitely yeah, we'd go for that. That's right. quite good. All around to Leo's for dinner then. Well, maybe not. But I mean, I think in fairness, you make a valid point there though, in th- in terms of people's reaction. Like I suppose the lids though for me with it, like that's I think this is why I've become completely fixated on it. Cause I just was like, I can't believe there's no lids. Having shared gaffes before with people and um them not put lids on stuff which absolutely should have lids on it. You're very is funny. Is that our kimchi, for example? No, no, this is just something no, no. different. I would always cover house. things, but I would put things in bowls with cling film and he'd be freaked. He'd be like, what, like if you're not going to Tupperware box? And I'd be like, no. Or just, just like, you just see, you see the condensation building on it and stuff and I'm like, that's that's not nice, you know? But like, it's more more to do with smelly stuff, like, you know? You can't be leaving <laughs> stuff like cheese and stuff like that sitting there or kimchi is my is my worst example, which I'll always remember, sitting there lidless <laughs> and the whole fridge becomes... Just an enormous smelly mess. So. Main takeaway is don't live a lidless life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so James Corden. Now, I didn't know that people had issues with James Corden. This is news to me. I feel like I just have not been in the loop on this. I, just to start, for anyone who hasn't seen it this week, he was banned and then unbanned, like no longer banned from a New York City restaurant. Mm. Um, quite a good restaurant as well. Quite a good restaurant. In Soho. Yeah, yeah, you've been there. Twice. You're yeah. quite fancy, Gav. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm such a You're foodie. You're quite fancy, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've, I've been there and I have always, and I've only ever known other people to refer to the service as being very good. Okay. So the story that you're about to tell of James Corden being somehow unimpressed with the service does make me wonder whether they sort of almost saw him coming and did not put the boat out for him to put their but boat out. It wasn't before. the first time he'd had an issue there, was it? I think it was. It happened on a separate occasion. Oh. Um, Richard, like James Corden... I suppose I didn't know you. You've kind of come across a few more yarns about James Corden that you reflected earlier. I just never knew. I thought that he was always the carpool karaoke guy. I thought he was really funny. I don't know if I was aware that there was like that people hate an undertone of rudeness <laughs> there that like you know the people had sort of been aware of. Or yeah, people just generally hate him. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, this, this is news to me. It's a lot of public figures, I suppose, as well. But James Corden. So just to read again what Keith McNally, who's the the owner of Balthazar, said. Uh, he described him as a tiny cretin of a man <laughs> and the most abusive customer wow. uh, so since crazy. the restaurant opened 25 years ago. Now, he said that James Corden then obviously rang him up and apologised mm-hmm. to him. Only after public shaming, though. Sometimes it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, first first complaint was about it. Was it about a hair? Yeah. Was there a hair in his food? And then he was like, oh yeah. But anyway. The second it, one was about the egg white omelette or something. The, the omelette had like either it, was it had yolk in it or it had white in it. They wanted either all of one or the other and there was an issue on it. Yeah. Yeah. But there, there's been a couple of instances where the internet has, has been set aflame in recent years about James Corden. Uh, I think there was one particular one where he did a, one of those uh, ask me anything rounds on Reddit. Uh, which was widely covered by the press at the time, uh, in which basically re- celebrities go on Reddit, the, the message board thing, and they just allow anybody to ask them 
as it says in the tin, ask them anything. Uh, And everybody just started asking him very questions about uh, apparent times when they were in his company or in his presence and he was rude to them. Uh, So that was widely covered at the time. So um, it's mad to sort of see that because you don't really, you don't really see that that often where you have, you know, this level of, oh, I have this anecdote and this anecdote and all that sort of stuff. You'd think that if it was an AMA with James Corden, that people would be going like, is there going to be another Gavin and Stacey reunion? Do, uh, like, do Smithy and... um, the Welsh character who that Ruth Jones plays whose name I can't remember do, uh, do they get together um, or like are you going to be asking about you know how much do you have to plan for carpool karaoke do you have the route pulled together do you have to work through agents do you need to rehearse the back catalogue so you know all the lyrics you, you don't expect them to be asking about uh, Nessa by the way is the character in oh, yeah, yeah. Gavin and Stacey uh, you don't expect <laughs> them to be like asking like you know why is it that you were such a, an arsehole on this particular I just I, I really feel like I've been maybe I've been under rock on this whole thing because I just thought I've always just kind of sort of like loved the carpool karaoke thing and love that persona but obviously he um has has managed to hold that together. This is a bit of an unfortunate turn of events. It's interesting though, you know when you talk to people like like we work in television and you meet a lot of people that would like work here and they've met so many different like famous people of varying degrees of fame. And you know the camera operators will always tell you great stories of the different like you know some of our yeah. camera operators have been like to the Oscars and everything. Like mm. they've been all over the world meeting some of the most famous people and they'll always the one consistent thing that you would always hear from people is that like actually the more famous people are the sounder they are like that generally it's the kind of maybe middle of the road like celebs or kind of the Z listers that so would it, tend to be a little like the, the Tom Hanks criterion that Tom Hanks is like the most famous think, actor in the world but it's partly because I mean that's a sweeping generalisation obviously but I do yeah. like that is often like the feedback that you'll get from people who have met a lot of these celebrities it's you, like you know sometimes that people are a little bit less inclined to be affected by their fame you the gave, higher up the food chain. When we were talking about this off air, you gave us one brilliant example of one of the AMA anecdotes where people were like, there was a people who are going to have to look this up, I think, themselves. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to say something without the right of reply here for James oh, Corden. Okay, okay, We'd first. like to invite James Corden if he wants to come on the group chat okay. to clarify yeah, any of these things. Yeah. Uh, come on. But I'm sure he's a perfectly nice guy. But the one thing, so apparently he apologised to Keith McNally, the owner. I don't know if he apologised to any staff involved. And he certainly didn't apologise for cats. Uh, so, I mean, I think I, I'm still I'm still not in on James Corden anyway. Which is why you are now going to make your life's business to defeat him in the fantasy football league that you are improbably, but somehow... Somehow in the league. <laughs> you are in a league with James Corden. With JC Milan, yeah. as his team is named. And Trevor Noah's in it as well. Now, sorry, hang on a second. There's going to be other people listening to the podcast just like me who don't understand how are you in this league with him? How does this work? I know a fella who knows I don't know, him. But I don't understand how this happens. Explain <laughs> well, to us how this happens. degrees of separation. I got an invitation. There's a few other people like Micah Richards is in it and Rio Ferdinand from football. I'm, like I'm actually breaking circle. the Omerta. I'm going to get kicked out of this league, but I'm, I'm on top of the league at the moment. So at least I retire undefeated. Maybe they will kick you out because you're Probably will, yeah. Rid of you, yeah. But he's not good at that either. I'm not like. So JC Milan found Rob. Yeah. And how many of you are in it? Uh, I think about thirty or forty. Oh my god, you were proper like thirty or forty inner circle with James uh, Gordon. Well. You can't message each other in it. I can't ask him. Like, you can't slide into... I was going to say, could you invite him onto the group chat then? So when he logs on this weekend, <laughs> Bob he'll like, FC. Yeah. <laughs> you were actually quite good at this fantasy football stuff. Did you win the thing here good. last year? Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think I'm right. second now in Virgin at the moment. You're yeah. not. Who's winning? Who's in front of you? I'm not sure. Somebody else is up there. I, I, I'll call them out though because yeah. <laughs> in the hope yeah. the podcast can intimidate people into losing uh, fantasy football yeah, no, Richard is, is currently fourth but uh, it's very tight at the top oh, so I've dropped yeah. down all to play for okay well listen thank you so much for joining us that's all we have time for this week uh, Richard Chambers news correspondent and fo- future football manager well thanks Sarah Stephen Kenny sign him up yeah. I was going to say <laughs> political correspondent Gavin Riley thank you Sarah a long, long held mathlete 
that's going to be your title, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I think I, well, I think the mathy thing. We're never going okay. to end. Um, don't forget to uh, like, share, and subscribe. Uh, we would love you to leave uh, some feedback on the podcast. I suppose it's mainly Apple, isn't it, where you can leave kind of a comment reviews and stuff. Yeah, yeah. reviews and stuff. Yeah, we haven't asked you that for a Spotify. little while. But yeah. if you're listening now and like you just have your phone in your hand, do write a review and let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Um, also, big thanks to Gareth, Killian, and Maxine who work on the podcast. Yeah. And we will see you on the group chat again next week. Thanks, everybody. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.